Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Hello, hi, hello. Welcome back to Rossafari Zoo News. News about zoos and conservation from Rossafari, which is where it gets its name from. So, hey, that makes sense. How are you guys doing today? I can't hear you, but I hope you're all saying that you're doing well because uh, I like you. You listen. You make me happy. You show up as little download numbers that I look at on my stats way too frequently, and I feel a very strong connection to each and every one of you. So, hey, thank you for that. I'm not saying you're all just statistics to me because you're not. You are all statistics to me. All right, this is weird. I like being weird. So enough of my blathering. Let's get to it. We're going to start off with a quick reminder to make sure that you hit subscribe if you haven't already. You'll get your interview shows on Tuesday and your Zoo News every Thursday. Also, if you can leave a five-star rating or even take a couple of seconds to write a review, it really helps other people find the podcast, which means a lot to me. On top of all of that, you make sure that you're following along at Rossafari on Instagram and Facebook. I post all kinds of cool animal pictures. And hey, if you feel like supporting my mission here, go to patreon.com slash Rossafari and find out ways that you can financially support the pod. Finally, just a quick reminder that you can also support what I'm doing with Zoo News by sending me articles. It really helps. You can tag me in posts on Facebook or Instagram or email them to me at rossafaripod at gmail.com. I think that uh, about half of the stories in this week's episode came to me from people like you listening and doing those things. And man, it makes my life a whole lot easier, especially when I forget that it's Wednesday and I'm going to be dropping this episode tomorrow and uh, I need to quickly record it. Also remember, if you send me those stories, I will say your name at the end of the podcast, and then you can tell your parents that you were mentioned on a podcast so they can look at you and say, a what now? So before we get to news from other places, I wanted to start with some news from my house. I have two bits of news that are pretty exciting this week. First of all, congrats to Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross, who is not only my partner, but my editor. She is officially a veterinarian now. Dr. Z will actually be moving up to Buffalo, New York to start a year-long internship doing veterinary work up in that area. I could not be more proud. The other bit of news is that she won't be going alone because there's a new puppy in the world of Rossafari. Peggy Sue Paradiddle, a black lab from Coal Fire Labradors, has joined the family. The plan is for Paradiddle to eventually be trained to be a conservation detection dog. Yay, exciting things. And now... One, two, three, four. Ow, there's a funky monkey. Treat kangaroo. Or a binturong. It's Zoo News. Yeah. Y'all, we're going to start Zoo News off across the pond in the UK this week for something that I'm incredibly excited about. 
So on this podcast, we have talked a lot about mixed species exhibits and how they're really cool and they give the uh, people that go to the zoo a unique look at how animals can interact with each other and how they also create automatic enrichment for the animals that are mixed together. Well, Paradise Wildlife Park in the UK is doing a mixed species exhibit set to open later this year that is unlike anything I have ever seen before. The new Sun Bear Heights exhibit is going to combine three species in a shared exhibit. Those three species are sun bears, obviously, binturongs, and Asian small clawed otters. Y'all, this is not your normal mixed species exhibit. This is going to be really cool. Paradise Wildlife Park showed how this is all going to work, and it's really interesting. Each animal will have their own area that they can separate into if they want to, but then there's a main area of the exhibit where they can all interact together. Now, I know that some of you listening to this might be thinking to yourselves, what are they thinking? The bear will just snack on the binturongs and otters. And, uh, you know, I get where you're coming from. But keep in mind that sun bears are the smallest and also most arboreal bear species and that they eat mostly insects. Now, I'm not going to lie, they, they do eat other things, including sometimes even animals as large as deer in the wild. However, in talking to keepers in the past at various mixed species exhibits, I have learned that animals don't really want to work for their food generally. It is much more common for an animal to sit and wait for the food that it knows is coming from its keepers than to actually try to attack, kill, and eat something that it finds on exhibit. And while that is not Always the case, we've all heard stories about random squirrels or uh, rabbits that get into exhibits and get eaten, sometimes to the uh, not-quite-amusement of children that are, you know, at the zoo that day. Uh, another thing that usually helps is doing proper animal introductions. I am sure that Paradise, a very respectable institution, is going to make sure that they slowly introduce the animals to each other, get them used to each other, and have many things on hand to distract the bears when they all first get together. After that, it should be smooth sailing. I am so excited about this exhibit and cannot wait until I can get over to the UK to see it, which will probably be a while. But hey, it's nice to know it's going to be there waiting for me. And now, to bring it back stateside, we have a bit of a sad story. But don't worry, folks. As you know, sometimes zoo news can have a lot of sadness in it. This is the only sad story of the week, I believe. So uh, buckle in, and then it'll be over, and we'll get to all the good happiness. A sparring match between two male markors at Utah's Hogel Zoo led to the death of one of the markors. This is interesting and newsworthy because uh, not only is it sad, but it seems like it's about the only time that's ever happened in captivity. Markor do regularly spar each other. It's part of their natural behavior. And as zoo representatives said, there is no desire to stop them doing this. It's part of how they live their lives, how they figure out who is in charge and all that good stuff. Truthfully, Markor are actually built to fight and spar without dying from it, which is why this is so shocking. The necropsy revealed that the animal in question seemed to be healthy and died an instantaneous death, so this is probably just a fluke. But it is worth mentioning as there are Markor all around the country, and keepers need to be aware that uh, this happened and keep an eye on their populations as well. Hopefully this one goes down as just a fluke that is... Uh, 
a one-and-done thing. But we are sending all of our condolences and love to the people at Utah's Hogel Zoo dealing with this loss. And now we move on to something much happier, and uh, this is actually an update from a previous episode, or should I say this is a pup date. You may remember that we talked about the Akron Zoo recently having red wolf pups. Four of those pups have been moved to the wild in North Carolina using a method called pup fostering. This is super cool, y'all. So, using radio telemetry, biologists in the wild, well, I mean, biologists who are studying red wolves in the wild, we don't actually have wild biologists running around North Carolina, start to document when female wolves stay in a single location, which is an indication that they have denned and are in the process of giving birth. At the same time, the Red Wolf SSP is trying to match up the timing of the birth of these wild litters with the captive-born litters, such as the one in Akron. It turns out that in the first two weeks of a wolf pup's life, the mother's maternal instincts are incredibly strong. So if you slip some of these under two-week-old pups into their litter, that instinct will take over and they will raise it as one of their own with very little risk of pup rejection. When a good match is found, biologists track when the wolf mother briefly leaves the den to go hunt for food for her and her pups, and then slide the captive-born pups into the den to meet their new foster siblings. Of course, the biologists don't just slide them in and leave. They tag the pups for future reference and also have to take the new puppies and rub them all over with the old puppies so that they all have the same scent. Man, that's a job that I want. I want to be an official puppy rubber. Research on this process has shown that the survival rate of the zoo-born pups is very similar to that of their wild-born foster siblings. In the case of the Akron-born pups, it seems that the mother took to all four pups with no issue and has already moved them, plus her biological-born pups, to a new den, which is common after any disturbance to a den. All pups seem to be doing well and have been properly adopted. I love all conservation stories, but I'm not going to lie. This red wolf conservation tale that I've been learning about and watching happen and change and grow in real time as I do raw safari, man, it touches my heart. I love it. And now for another fun update about zoos helping with conservation, let's go back to Zoo America in Hershey, Pennsylvania. You may remember a recent episode of Rossafari Zoo News talking about the fact that efforts to reestablish the populations of the regal fritillary butterfly in Pennsylvania have been going very well. Well, in fact, that is because the success rate for raising caterpillars of the species at Zoo America has climbed from 15% to 60% which has meant that there are a lot more caterpillars and butterflies ready to be released. As such, some of the already established populations across Pennsylvania not only got their initial infusion of new caterpillars, but also got a second batch a few months later. On top of that, four additional secret sites have been established to reestablish populations of this almost extinct butterfly, and so far the reintroductions are going well in those secret areas. Zoo America 
along with its partners at the Pennsylvania Game Commission and the Pennsylvania Department of Military and Veteran Affairs Environmental Office at Fort Indian Town Gap, are really excited to see these additional populations seeming to take root and start to thrive. It is also believed that this higher survival rate is not a coincidence, but is due to many factors, including better husbandry and a better understanding of the natural history of the animal. As such, it seems that moving forward, the project will have many more caterpillars to release and that the butterfly may have a better chance than ever of coming back from near extinction. And all the way on the other side of the country, congratulations to the San Diego Zoo for having the first ever golden talkin calf born in the Western Hemisphere. The golden talkin is an incredibly rare species in zoos. As a matter of fact, the only place you can find it in the Western Hemisphere is the San Diego Zoo. And they recently had a calf born there. The calf is named Mei Ling, which is Mandarin for beautiful antelope. Little on the nose, but hey, it's a pretty beautiful antelope, so I'll allow it. I keep thinking I get a vote in these things, and I, I just don't. Anyway, if you get the chance to go to the San Diego Zoo in the near future, you will be able to see the only golden talking calf in the country and the zoo's Asia Passage area. Congrats to everyone at this amazing facility. And now we head to the New England area where five new beluga whales have arrived at Mystic Aquarium, having gotten to cross the border and come over from Canada. Man, I wish I could cross the Canadian border right now. Toronto Zoo, I miss you. Anyway, these five belugas will be joining the three already on exhibit at Mystic Aquarium. And of course, they're not just there to be pretty. They are part of a major research project being done on belugas that will not only help belugas in captivity, but also their wild counterparts. All of the work done on the belugas will be done with their permission, of course, as they have the ability to swim away at any time, just like with any training done with captive animals in good facilities. While some animal activist groups have complained about this move, of course, it's actually really good for the belugas. For starters, they are coming to Mystic from a facility that is not accredited and has over 50 belugas in a tank that the AZA would not allow to hold 50 belugas. Second of all, the animals are captive-born and thus are unreleasable into the wild. Mystic is an amazing facility, and these belugas are going to live incredible lives there. When I think of Mystic Aquarium, the first thing I think of is the belugas there, especially the one that splashed me so much and had such a fun time doing it the last time I visited. I cannot wait to get back up to Mystic and see these new additions. And our final bit of zoo news today comes out of Zoo Atlanta. The 15-year-old giraffe, Abu, recently underwent an incredibly cool veterinary procedure. So Abu, as many geriatric giraffes do, experiences arthritis in his front left foot. For a long time, he has been responding to laser treatment and analgesics. However, these are no longer proving to be effective. Generally, when animals stop responding to treatment and are in a lot of pain, the only option left is euthanasia. However, that was not the case in Abu's situation. The animal care and veterinary teams at Zoo Atlanta teamed up with the Zoo Hoofstock Trim Program, an external professional team which specializes in hoof care of giraffes, 
and an anesthesiology team from the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine to put Abu under general anesthesia, give him new shoes, and also give him a stem cell treatment designed to help slow the progression of his arthritis. The therapeutic shoes placed on Abu's front two hooves are not dissimilar to ones used on horses with arthritis, but were specifically designed with Abu's hooves in mind. While anesthesia is always risky in large and geriatric animals, Abu woke up about an hour after the procedure and was back on his feet and seemingly doing well. Congrats to everyone involved in this incredible new procedure. Hopefully, this is a game changer for all old arthritic giraffes. Man, when I'm old, I want to start a band called the Arthritic Giraffes. Well, anyway, now it's time for... Stereotypical Animal Podcast Theme Song Here to bring you to Conservation News All right, let's throw it back across the pond to start off this section just like we did with Zoo News. Ratna, a 17-year-old Sumatran tiger who lives at Shepherd Wildlife Park, which is near Cambridge in the UK, has had the first ever surgery of its type on a large cat. Nobody is entirely sure what was wrong with Ratna's eye, but it is believed that she might have accidentally bumped it on some bamboo or a stick or something like that. Having already had cataract surgery, the eye was incredibly sensitive and began to deteriorate shortly after this potential injury happened. Keepers were administering daily eye drops, but they did not seem to be helping the situation. Dr. David Williams and Dr. Steve Phillip, a vet from the International Zoo Veterinary Group, teamed up to perform a hood graft on this tiger. This procedure involved taking a flap of the pink of the eye and securing it over the cornea itself. This actually allows the cornea to go through its own healing process, which it did. Now, when you look at Ratna's eye, you literally can't tell that anything had been wrong with it at all. They are unsure exactly how much of Ratna's vision has returned in the eye. However, she is moving much more securely after this. Whether that is simply because it got rid of the pain that she was feeling or it actually did improve some of her vision is currently unknown, but Ratna no longer has to get annoying eye drops and is doing much better with her mobility than she had been before this incredible, unique operation. Yay, science! And now we move on to a story about animal conservationists. That's right, y'all. It's the animals doing the conservation in this one. As I'm sure most of you know, goats eat grass. And in California, there is a major problem with wildfires, many of which are started by humans doing something dumb and flammable while hanging out in the very dry grasses that grow rampantly throughout California. Thus, hungry goats are used to eat many of these grasses and thus reduce the risk of wildfires. This is not a small project. For instance, on one day, the area known as King Estates Park in East Oakland had 2,000 goats dropped off, who then munched around 70 acres of the grasses at the park. Removing these grasses will greatly help stop any wildfires that may spread near Oakland from actually going into the city. There's even a gentleman named Martin Matarese whose actual job is to coordinate the goats that will blanket all of the hillsides around the Oakland area. 
He even considers the size of the goats and how good they are on mountainous terrain when assigning different goat herds to different areas. This may be the cutest conservation story ever, y'all. We've had turtle dogs, and now we have goat firefighters. I love conservation news. And speaking of conservation, it turns out that an extinct animal isn't. Recently, a group of South African shark hunters discovered a population of coelacanths. Coelacanths, also known as the four-legged fossil fish, predate dinosaurs and are believed to have existed for about 420 million years, though recently it was believed they were extinct. However, deep-sea fishing gillnets used to capture sharks that are very deep underwater have been accidentally capturing coelacanths in the waters near Madagascar. And no, I do not understand why Madagascar gets all the cool, unique species. There is currently some debate about whether shark hunters will try to quickly capture all of these coelacanths to sell off for a large profit, or are actually afraid of capturing them as they are an endangered species that are protected by international law. One thing that is certain, however, is that it is really cool to know that this ancient species is still around. Here's hoping that man doesn't wipe them out like we thought we did so many decades ago. And while the coelacanth story is fascinating, we should not be praising the shark hunters who were the ones who found this species again. In fact, 16 out of 31 oceanic shark species are now critically endangered or endangered. The number of oceanic sharks and rays in the world has declined by 71% from 1970 to now. A new method has been developed to help this issue, however, and it's really exciting. Scientists from the Southeast Zoo Alliance for Reproduction and Conservation collaborated with the Aquarium of the Pacific, Ripley's Aquarium of the Smokies, the Florida Aquarium, Adventure Aquarium, and the Field Museum in Chicago to artificially inseminate shark moms, and it has led to 97 successful shark births. This was done by collecting semen from 19 male white-spotted bamboo sharks, which was then used to inseminate 20 females. The white-spotted bamboo shark is not itself endangered, which actually made it a really great candidate for this research, as it was the first time something like this has ever been done. It is also a relatively small shark species, reaching about a maximum length of 3 feet, and um, are also fairly able to be handled because of that. Also, there are plenty of bamboo sharks in captivity, so it was easy to have a large population to start this study with. While the artificial insemination was successful, it actually took a lot of testing to figure out whether that was the case because sharks are such unique animals. For instance, shark females are able to store sperm and then use it to inseminate eggs later in life, so genetic testing was required to determine whether the shark babies were actually a part of this process and not because of the previously stored sperm that the mother sharks already had. While many of the female sharks were inseminated with sperm from sharks at the same facility— there was an attempt to send sperm across the country from New Jersey to California and from Florida to Tennessee, and the success rate was similar for both. This is really, really cool because sharks are actually a really hard animal to transport as they get more stressed than most animals do during transport, 
And as such, the ability to leave sharks at one facility while transporting their sperm and using the SSP that way instead of moving the actual animals would be a huge boon to the species. This can also have a huge impact on the genetic diversity in the population as you could easily collect semen from wild sharks or even trade it nation to nation, something that is often not done with animals because the transportation would take so long and be so detrimental to the animal. As if all of this wasn't cool enough, and trust me, friends, it is, there were actually three hatchlings in this group that hatched from parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis, in case you don't know, is when a female gives birth without sperm. This is not something that it was known that sharks could do, and in fact, we still have no idea how they actually do it or why. However, it does open up a new world of exciting study for the scientists. With such a successful first experiment, it is believed that the same technique will next be tried on sand tiger sharks, which are a protected species that is critically endangered in some parts of its range. We'll see if the same techniques work to help save this incredibly amazing and charismatic shark species. And now... In other news. So we're starting off other news today by revisiting cicadas. I have a couple of different bits of information that I've shared before, and so I wanted to run those by y'all right now. First of all, there are some things going around the internet, and shocker, they are false. These are fake articles saying that cicadas are bad for animals to eat. They are not. Now, I will tell you that cicada shells can cause problems with certain digestive tracts of certain sensitive animals. But in general, animals are going to eat the cicadas and it's going to be fine. Remember last week when we were talking about the article from the... Uh, National Zoo that said that they're actually not only going to let their animals eat the cicadas, but save and freeze-dry them for later usage? Yep, trust me, those scientists know what they're doing. So if you see those articles, don't freak out if one of your puppies suddenly eats a cicada. All is well, they're a great source of natural protein, and some scientists have actually started calling them tree shrimp. Ew. The other bit of cicada news I have for you is a bit more trippy. and. Yes, I mean that quite literally. That's because a fungus that is laced with the same chemical as psychedelic mushrooms will invade the cicada bodies and eat away their insides until the abdomens crack, fall off, and get replaced with a ball of white spores to spread said fungus. The psychedelic chemical in this fungus is psilocybin, which is the same thing that uh, magic mushrooms use to cause humans to trip. And because of the effects of this drug on the cicadas, the cicadas will not even know that this is happening to them, despite the fact that their butts have literally fallen off. Sigh, if only I had the rights to Samuel L. Jackson in uh, Jurassic Park saying, hold on to your butts right now, but I don't. Without knowing anything is wrong with them, the cicadas will move forward with their original plan, which is to mate. But here's the craziest part of all of this craziness. As we've mentioned on the podcast before, cicadas will make certain noises to attract a mate, and they know whether to listen for the male noises or the female noises. 
the fungus in question actually can infect both and causes both to make the noises of the male and the female, thus attracting both sexes to come and try to mate with the animal, which then spreads the spores and allows the fungus to spread. How well adapted is this fungus to cicadas? Well, much like cicadas, it has learned to lay dormant for every 13, 16, or 17 years based on what brood it prefers, reawakening at the same time as the cicadas it wants to snack on. One final bit of information about this story, though, y'all. In case any of you are listening to this and thinking, ha-ha, I'm gonna eat some cicadas and trip on the psilocybin, um, no. First of all, most cicadas that you see will not be infected by this, and there's no real way to tell easily if, uh, if they are. I guess you could look for butts falling off, but that just seems weird and unlikely. And second of all, it's such a small amount that you would have to eat a ton of cicadas to feel any effect at all. So, no, this is not some new protein-filled magic mushroom trip that you can go on once every 17 years. Sorry, y'all. Still, it is an incredible example of a parasitic relationship and how just messed up the natural world can be sometimes. So if you're one of these people that's deathly afraid of the cicadas that are coming, well, just remember, some of them have their butts falling off and are getting all confused, so maybe they're not that scary after all. And now for the final story of the week, something a little different. I am making every effort to verify every story that I put into Zoo News. And I'm also trying to keep these stories, you know, pretty recent within the last week or couple of weeks. But uh, something happened this week where I heard a very old story that I am completely unable to verify online. But that's just so good, I want to share it with y'all anyway. I recently had the pleasure of meeting Carol Fuhr, the mother of my friend Becca. We were hanging out and talking about the podcast, and I mentioned that I've had all kinds of cool animal experiences doing this, including having a binturong on my shoulder. Carol looked up, and I was expecting the standard response of, what? What's a binturong? But instead, she caught me completely off guard when she very excitedly said, I have a binturong story for you. As you can imagine, I was hooked. In the mid-1970s, a binturong was found wandering around in Princeton, New Jersey. It was actually discovered hanging out in a tree as binturongs are wont to do. This led to a quick question of whether there was a binturong outbreak in Princeton, and people were searching other trees trying to find more binturongs, but it turned out that there was just the one. It was taken into captivity and given a good life elsewhere, where it belongs, and no one ever really found out what happened officially. However, unofficially, it's a pretty cool story. It was right around this time that Ima Marcos, the daughter of Ferdinand Marcos and Imelda Marcos, had started going to Princeton. If you don't recognize the name Marcos... Ferdinand was elected the 10th president of the Philippines back in the 1960s, and he lived a rather extravagant lifestyle. They earned this lifestyle, if you can call it that, by stealing literally billions of dollars from the Filipino people. And yes, I can say that because they were totally convicted for it. Their reign was legendary for many things, including a run-in with the Beatles and the fact that Amelda Marcos had so many pairs of designer shoes while her people suffered in poverty. 
When their daughter Ima came to Princeton from the Philippines, it was widely believed that her love of exotic animals led her to bring some interesting pets to the area. While she never admitted that the Binturong was hers, it most likely was. And I just love that story so much. I spend a lot of time in Princeton, New Jersey, and I'm definitely going to be checking the trees the next time I go there in the hopes that some hot, buttery popcorn love comes my way. And now it's time for... Your Week of Animal Holidays. May 21st is Endangered Species Day. May 22nd is the International Day for Biological Diversity, also known as World Biodiversity Day. May 23rd is World Turtle Day. You know I'm going to be celebrating that one. Possibly by wearing green and hiding. And last but not least, keep in mind that if you are listening to this in the first couple days that it was released, it is also Bear Awareness Week. So uh, make sure you're aware of the bears, y'all. And there you have it, folks. Another week of Safari Zoo News is in the books. I want to say a special thanks to Alicia Gaudet, Dr. Natalie Taco, Elizabeth Dunlevy, Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross, Carol Feuer, and Jacob Newman for contributing to this week's episode. I love how many people are sending me articles right now. And don't forget, you can help with that too. All you have to do is tag at Ross Safari on any articles that you see on Facebook or Instagram that might be interesting. Or if you're looking at a webpage, feel free to message it to me or send it to rossafaripod at gmail.com. All right, y'all. You know it by now, but those newsy credits backward are Yaswen Steiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.